Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, I think we're in good shape. Cool. We're uh, going to go live in three, two, an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond, with your host, Ryan Bell. Hey everyone, Ryan Bell here from the Life After God podcast. We're broadcasting live today from the Level Ground headquarters. I'm with my friend Kester Bruin, who we'll uh, chat with in just a moment, and we actually have a small live audience with us here today at the Level Ground headquarters. Welcome, guys. So good to have a few people here. They sound like more than they really are because they're really good friends and they like me a lot. And uh, so, yeah, this is a really great opportunity. want to give a huge shout out to Level Ground for allowing us to use this space. Samantha, who is one of the leaders of this uh, community, um, and I have been conversation partners around a lot of these issues for a very long time. They work on creating conversation at the intersection of faith, uh, sexuality, and gender, and uh, do that through the arts, uh, a lot of work with film, but also graphic art, painting, you know, hands-on type stuff. So this space that we're in that you can't see because we're on the radio uh, is uh, full of artwork that has been created here uh, under the guidance of some uh, people that know something more about art than I do. And uh, it's a good spot, and they graciously let us use this space for uh, this type of thing, and this is the second time we've been here, so we're really, really grateful for that. Um, I want to also mention that uh, in a few days, I'm going to be uh, speaking with uh, Sean McDowell, uh, hosted and, and moderated by Justin Brierley of the um, unbelievable radio show out of the UK uh, on Premier Christian Radio, and I uh, have no idea how that's going to go, um, but uh, I'm actually just confessing to Kester a second ago that I'm really nervous about that. Um, I, I probably would not have agreed with much of Sean's views when I was a pastor, um, and, and certainly not anymore. And so, but he seems like a really lo- lovely gentleman, and, and certainly Justin's a great guy. So if you're in the Southern California area, I don't have the date on the tip of my tongue, but if you go to lifeaftergod.org and look at the calendar, you'll see uh, the date for that. It's up in the valley in Northridge. So if you're in the area, would love to have you come and at least uh, support me. Um, sit far enough back so I can't see you. That would be great. Um, but, uh, you know, that would be great to hang out afterwards and we can talk about all the ways I, I should have handled things that I didn't. So, um, <clears throat> it would be great. So anyway, check out the website, lifeaftergod.org for more about life after God and, uh, to find the date for that. It's free. Um, they want you to register on Eventbrite, but you, it's all free. So 
come hang out with me. I know a couple of people are flying into town, one from Atlanta and one from up in the Bay Area, uh, to be there for that. So no pressure at all about that. So today, um, I'm here with Kester Bruin. I've, I, I keep referring to him as my friend, but we just met, actually, about half an hour ago. But, uh, We're friends, I, then. So, you know. Yeah. It, it's good enough. We can say that. We yeah. can say that. And, we, you know, and in a sense, I feel like I've known you for a lot longer than that because you've been putting your heart and energy into this conversation about um, theology and faith and the world as we experience it. Uh, for a while, for a, quite a while. And we have a lot of mutual friends. Yes. Um, but you're here from your home in London on a little tour uh, with this book. You've been here for what, like a week already? Uh, nearly two weeks now. Wow. Yeah, so hey. actually flying back today. Are you anxious to get back? Uh, I'm not anxious to get back, but it feels like time to go home. Yeah. Yeah. You've been sleeping in someone else's house for long enough. You want Exactly. To... Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I'm going back and then taking my kids down to France for a bit of camping. And uh... Oh, that's great. Which is great. So I'm where where that. in France? Uh, Bordeaux. Oh. yeah. There's some kind of red juice that they make out of grapes yeah. there. It's not it's not so bad, you know. It's, yeah, it's I've heard of, of it. I've heard of it. It's reasonable stuff. I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's exciting. I was going to say you don't care for wine at all. No, you know I've heard of the stuff. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> you may want to try it while you're there. I hear it's pretty amazing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah that, thanks for the tip. I'll I'll see what they've got. I've never been to that part of France, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm very jealous. That's awesome. Well, I want to jump in. You, you know, you're here in the U.S. touring in part, at least, or maybe the main reason is because you've just written this book that came out this spring uh, called Getting High. Um, the subtitle is A Savage Journey to the Heart of the Dream of Flight. And um, I want to jump in because we're going to run out of time before we know it. But before we get into the, the book, can you and, – and actually this is in the book because it's a memoir in many ways, right? It's it a, is, yeah. It's a, really a story woven your, – your story is woven through the issues that you want to talk about. Um, so take us back to your childhood, your upbringing in religion, and just describe for everyone, because I don't know that anyone's read the book besides. Have you guys read the book? Anybody seen the book? We have a few here if you'd like to buy one. Mm-hmm. I saw you walk in with a small pile. I've got pi- a couple, yeah. A small pile. Um, but um, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about your growing up in, in religion. What was that like? So um, I was kind of born right into it, basically. Um, my father was a, a Church of England minister. Um, and going back through his family, um, there are kind of ministers at every generation going all the way back and back and back. Hmm. Um, so it's very much kind of part of the, you know, part of, of growing up, a major, major part of that. Uh, I was born in Sheffield, which is a industrial town, or was at the time, up in the middle of England. Um, and then we moved fairly quickly um, out to a little mining village um, out in Yorkshire and where my dad was the vicar of this church and it was, you know, it was the highest point of the village. I mean, it was that classic thing, like this is the center point of the village. It's a mining village, so people are kind of working underground and, and his job, as I saw it very distinctly, was to lift people, you know. Each Sunday, he kind of would, would draw them up out of underground and up into the, you know, helping them to look upwards up to this God thing. So I, you know, I sang in the church choir and, um, you know, I, I did, I did absolutely all of it. And then not so long after that. Um, so this is now the early eighties. We moved more towards London, um, away from that kind of industrial North. And, and again, you know, I, I kind of totally grew up as that good Christian kid. I went to Billy Graham's Mission England in 1984 and kind of went down onto the football field. Wow. 
partly because I wanted to go onto a football field. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I wanted to walk out on the hallowed turf. But yes. that, was, that was great, you know. Um, and I've got a brother and sister. So my brother and sister were both away at school. Um, and in fact, one of the things I talk about in the book is, is um, actually my sister was really unwell. And it's only been in the last few years that I've really come to terms with how that had really affected my growing up spiritually and in fact the entire family and how those things were kind of codependent on one one another anyway that uh, was a heartbreaking part of the first chapter of your book i remember i posted a photo of it um i think right. you saw it i was yeah. over here at vromans actually uh reading out front and i was just there was just so much beauty around me that day. Even I even commented on the color of the chairs I was sitting in. And right. I think it, it was just this heightened awareness because you were talking about your sister. And I was just like, I couldn't keep reading. I was just weeping, you know, just reading the story. So it's, I guess to say, it's your book is also very, just beautifully written. And, Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah but I, mean, anyway. I really care about the craft because um, I think, I mean, we're in an art space here. And I just think it's profoundly important. Yeah. You know, it is really important to work on that craft. So I thank you so much for, mm. yeah, yeah. for acknowledging that. But you're, you were saying your sister really profoundly affected the way you saw religion and faith because of what she was going through. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it, it, was, um, you know, it was that sense of flight. Like I was trying to escape a place of, of pain and of hurt. And, and there was this great hope held out that somewhere in the above would be where those where those pains would be, would be healed. Um, you know, and there's that great verse in the uh, book of Revelation right at the end of the Bible, you know, there'll be no more crying and no more pain and all the rest of it. And I was like, woo you know, get me some of that, please. Like, right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> How did I get on that trip? <laughs> and, and, you know, so it's that constant pursuit of that and pursuit of that. And then it's like, well, you know, we can't deliver that quite right now. Like, in fact, we might only be able to get you that once you're dead. Um, but okay, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. No, I still, you know, I'm still kind of keen. And it's a it's a clever marketing ploy. It's brilliant. You it's know, utterly, you can utterly have brilliant. perfect deferred payments. Yeah, or, you know, deferred delivery after you're dead, and so no one's ever come back to actually confirm <laughs> yeah. whether it's happened. So hold on a minute, this wasn't quite what I. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> it's just cold. Down it's here. a very smart. <laughs> it's a very smart model. Um, but I, you know, I took that all the way out to university, uh, and I talk about in the book. There was a kind of beginnings of a of a big shift in me between um leaving school and going to university which actually very nicely coincided with my first trip to southern california so in another way like the book is a is a kind of love letter to this part of the world which i absolutely adore um it's been really formative in my life and the different trips i've taken here have always been at kind of interesting moments no pun intended right oh of course no <laughs> <laughs> um sky high to get over to la yeah absolutely um and then i went to so i then went to university and um yeah there were kind of different kinds of ecstasies um at university shall we say and i was in a whole load of bands in a in a really really fruitful time for music in the united kingdom and in a city where um, you know, if any of you have heard of Massive Attack or Portishead or any of those kind of bands, and we were, uh, and you know, Jamiroquai, Brand New Heavy, you know, we were playing alongside those guys and recording with them and wow. just having a really, really incredible time. And, it, and, and strange enough, it was like, it was just another kind of ecstatic experience, you know? It was like, this can lift me above my hurts. It prevents me from having to deal with that painful ground. The mundanities of life, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was able to swap one for the other without any particular thought about, you know, whether there was, should be a critique 
of that pursuit of the above at all, you know? Right. So I kind of moved from a from this, you know, really, really going for it Christian guy to, you know, I was still going to church, but I wasn't really telling anyone about it. And <laughs> spending a lot of time in uh, the wonderful cathedrals of the nightclubs in, in, in Bristol and around the country and stuff and playing music and just having a fantastic time. Yeah. Um, and then that all stopped. And I was kind of like, oh, I, yeah, I had this kind of shocking realization that, hmm, I didn't realize I was going to have to do something with my life, you know. So I left university and moved up to London. And if any of you remember, like, the Toronto Blessing thing, which was, like, this kind of crazy, charismatic trip that... Was that the laughter thing? Oh, it was everything. It was laughter and animal noises and, like, gold teeth people's, in people's so mouths. Do, do any like, of you know what this is about? Those of you... Yeah. So, so there was, in Toronto, at this particular... I think it was a... Vin, was it a vineyard? It was a vineyard church. Vineyard church. Yeah. Um, this Toronto blessing and it, right by the Toronto airport, right? It was the Toronto yep. airport vineyard and people were just losing their minds, like in the service laughing just uncontrollably for no reason. It was just this contagious laughter. And then like you were saying, animal noises and oh God, it yeah. was just yeah. really and, swept. And, you know, so, so the book is, is also uh, viewed through the prism of the 1960s. And I think, all of those guys who were kind of right there at the height of the LSD counterculture would not have been out of place in these services. Like, people, like, just, just totally losing it. And there's something really psychologically important about having moments to do that. It's, a, you know, the question's about attribution, isn't it? But, but what, was, what was really interesting is the pastor of the church I was going to in London, it was necessary for him to fly over like to buy into the stuff, you know, and he had to bring some of the stuff back to share with us. <laughs> and a little Which little is a bit jar. odd, you know, like, like you kind of, you know, you're sort of worshipping this God who is omniscient and omnipresent, but you've got to go to the place to actually get it, to bring it back. So <laughs> anyway, so there was, again, it was like another switch back to another kind of crazy ecstatic thing mm. going on. And all this time, like I'm now living in London with my sister and it's, you know, I'm kind of feeling a bit, strange because like you know it's years ago she's feeling a lot better like she's she's pretty much well so why do I not feel good like why why do I not feel that our relationship is right and there's all this kind of unresolved snakes kind of squirming in my stomach and and to escape that yeah I just you know roared like a lion and and uh kind of you know ran around craziness in the middle of church and it and it felt like that that move into the vertical this ecstasy was was a way to avoid dealing with that Hmm. yeah yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating, and I think, you know, what's, I think you've already begun to hint at it, but in, in the book, you really beautifully weave together several seemingly unrelated strands, if you haven't spent much time thinking about it, but basically the history of actual flight, like literal yep. flight, like beginning with hot air balloons all the way to um, modern-day um, uh, aerospace type of yep. flight, Uh Together with uh, drugs, especially psychedelic drug experiences, in the, particularly in the 60s, as a type of flight and getting high. And then um, technology, mm. we'll come to in a minute, um, as another strand of that kind of attempt to transcend and religion. Yeah. Um, and I, I was going to ask you, like, when did these four things click for you? And you're like, oh, my gosh, this is all about the same thing. That's a really good question. I mean, basically, I, I ended up writing the book twice. So for some reason, and I, and I always think that, that, you know, for me, writing is a kind of psychotherapeutic Absolutely. act. Like, I, I, don't, 
I don't write to reveal stuff to other people. I write to discover stuff within myself. You know, mm. and, it, and it's you know what? It's cheaper than a therapist as well. <laughs> it's like, it's not to, any easier. Go to a coffee shop and like you know five bucks for a cappuccino. It's, Open it's, a vein and just yeah, you know, bleed. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot cheaper than than, than therapy. But, um, yeah. but for some reason, I, I didn't really question why. But I started writing about the history of the history of flight, and I kind of thought that was interesting. And I and I'd always had this fascination with the sixties and and with Apollo and those kind of missions and stuff. So I wrote this book kind of about the, the history of flight, and I then got to well, I, I ended up. Um, writing and presenting a show on BBC Radio 4, which is like our main... Um, which is on your website, if anyone yeah, wants so to check it out. Yeah, so they can listen to it there. So it's like our main uh, talk show um, radio mm-hmm. in, in, in the UK. Uh, and, I, and I presented this piece uh, about the history of flight and about the meaning of flight. And on that show, I, I interviewed a philosopher who I'd been fond of, a guy called Simon Critchley. Oh, yeah. Uh, who is a professor. He's British, but he's a professor of philosophy in New York. Um, brilliant guy. So I was, yeah, brilliant guy. And I was like, so I was then talking to his agent afterwards, and she read the manuscript, and she's like, "Hey, it's a really great book, but uh, you know what? There's a story missing here, and that's your story. And like, it would be a much better book if you could kind of excavate something of your story within that." And I was like, "Oh my god, she's really found me out, you know?" Because <laughs> you were hiding in there. Yeah, unconsciously, I, that was exactly right, and I, I just didn't. You know, I, I, di- I hadn't gone there. Now, completely uh, coincidentally, I hadn't told anyone about this, but I decided, she was like, look, you know, I think you should go away and have a, have a think about that and maybe do some rewrites. And I was like, okay, cool. So I hadn't told anyone about that. But a week later, I get through the post this envelope and I open it up and it's from my sister and um, it's photocopies of her diaries that she had recently rediscovered in a box in my parents' attic from when she's like nine, ten years old. Wow. Yeah. And you and share this, a few of those. I share a few of those and and you know if you read the book you need to know. Like she's you know, she signed off on the book. She she had to um she, she's been really supportive and I you know I want to say publicly I'm massively grateful to her mm. for allowing me to write the book. Um but I mean these just broke me absolutely broke me and I've really quickly realized that yeah I had been fleeing you know that was my flight from Mm. this place of pain and I'd just not been able to go there and I'd spent my entire life doing that and for various personal reasons to do with kind of breakdown in relationships in in my own life and uh losing um you know my best friend and kind of co-conspirator uh to cancer all at the same time I kind of realized this was a, a good opportunity to kind of return to Earth in a fairly spectacular <laughs> crash landing <laughs> and that it would be good to, good to interrogate that and to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is a history of flight, but it's, it's, it's proposing at the beginning, you know what, we, we are quite clearly the most intelligent animals on this planet, um, but there was one thing we couldn't do and we couldn't fly. And so we project onto the above everything that we felt we lacked within ourselves, And so this yearning for physical altitude becomes, you know, completely inextricably linked with Hmm. this um, spiritual longing. Kind of a metaphysical desire, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's a desire to 
to complete the things that we lack within ourselves. Mm. So I'm convinced that, that the pursuit of physical flight was really bound up with that, and that mm. becomes particularly focused during the period of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. But at the same time, like while we couldn't do that physical flight because mm-hmm. we didn't have the technologies yet, we did it internally. And maybe, you know, like the earliest... Um, where we explore that is through dreams, where we, you know, we kind of feel ourselves lifting away somehow, and, and we imagine the, uh, you know, kind of very, very early humankind sitting by the fire, and, and what this this uh, Muslim writer in the 12th century describes in this wonderful early uh, kind of poetic exploration of consciousness is, he says it's like you know these sparks from the fire were kind of yearning and rising up, trying to meet back with the little lights up in the sky. In other words, it was through the ascent, through fire or whatever, that they were going to join up with the heavenly lights above. And, you know, we, we call it the heavens, whatever. So in kind of dreams and in, and in religion, we, we, we put together this idea that if we could ascend, you know, having fallen, and then you begin to see all these vectors within the kind of Christian mythology of you know of incarnation and god coming down or jesus coming down and us going back up and all this kind of stuff and then there's these extraordinary hierarchies of intermediate beings between us and god and oh you know they're they're kind of angels and they're kind of in between us and god so what have they got they've got wings because you know they can kind of begin to perfect what we don't what we lack Yeah. yeah and they kind of do do instant messaging and all that kind of stuff so um, you make this great rye joke, uh, I forget, uh, towards the end, I think chapter six, where uh, you talk about the ascension of Jesus in the book of Acts as he, he's uploaded into the cloud. I, I just thought it was such a, a great, like, little... And, you know, it, like, it is a joke, but at the same time, the language, it, it's come from somewhere. <laughs> it's almost literally... You know, it's, yeah. it really has come from somewhere, and I, I just think it's really interesting. That like, we call this the cloud, Yeah, it's right? become the cloud. Um, and, you know, you go back to the cloud of unknowing and you go, you know, it's now become the cloud of knowing. And it's, it's, it's really extraordinary um, how these kind of linguistic things have, have worked and functioned to link all these things together. Yeah. Did you have a passage about that? I think we talked about you reading a passage. Is that are we are we? Yeah, we could do that. Are one, we yeah. beyond that or do you want yeah, to re- read that? Yeah. Um, um, from about the, the concept of flight. Yeah. So this, was this like the early one or the later? The one? earlier one. I oh, think, the early yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of links in with the stuff um, you that know, you were just saying. Of, yeah. yeah. So, um, so the, 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 what I do before this is to talk about how on my sixth birthday I was taken to see Star Wars, um, and that was. I just, think I was seven. You were seven. We were, I, yeah. How old are you? Well, we don't want to maybe do this on the. <clears throat> yeah. I think we're the same age, roughly. Yeah. We're we're, the, we're pretty much the same age. That's yes. What we'll let's say. just let's say just that. leave it at that. So. <laughs> You, you can work it out. It was like, the first movie I ever saw in the theater. I think yeah. it was for you as well. Oh, my God. And it, it literally blew my world apart because, I mean, we had nothing out in Yorkshire in the 1970s. <laughs> there, there was no... How high could you jump off the ground? Well, this a was it, feet, yeah. Like, and, I, you know, so I'd, I'd climb up into the spire of, of my dad's church, and that was, that was as high as it went. So then you go and see Star Wars, and you like, in the first movie, it's this, just this unbelievably huge spaceship that rumbles into view, and it was... It was just like this massive rupture in my life of, of um, seeing this spaceship come through. So then, uh, yeah, I can't, I'll, I'll just read a bit from, from um, where we go from there. When I got home from the cinema, I slipped on a new pair of trainers that I'd been given for that birthday. I thought they were awesome. They had a sponge wedge in the heel. 
These shoes would lift me off the ground. We didn't have money or a spaceship, but the vicarage had the largest garden in the village. And with an early Beatles record playing in the background, I opened the back door. The heady smells of the warm evening hit me. The mown grass from the lawn and the pig shit from the farm over the fence. Mum's rose beds all topped with manure that was kept piled next to the vegetable patch. She and Dad toiled over to keep us fed. I opened that door and stepped out, truly believing that with my sponge wedge trainers laced tightly to my mercurial feet, I would jump up and fly, up and away from my growing anxieties, up and away from the coal mining pits and the filth and the worries about the Yorkshire Ripper. Flight, a twin-engined word carrying ideas of escape, fleeing the place of pain and lifting into the air. To fly is to flee. It is to move along an axis that confounds any obstacle put in front of us. This is different to running away. We get high when absconding along the horizontal is not enough. Hemmed in on all sides, Superman, Spider-Man, the Jedi Knights, all of them surprise their enemies with a vertical move into the air. When you can't run away, you have to move upwards. You have to get high. That's great, and I just... I could relate to it so much. And I think one of the greatest things about writing, whether it's this kind of poetic prose or po- po- poetry proper or, or a public lecture, is, is when someone says something that you so deeply relate to and you kind of nod like you're nodding right now and you're just like, yes, yes, that's how I've, I've felt that way before and I never right. like, thought to express it that way. Um, and it's, it's not too long, as you said in your uh, previous statements, uh, that you really did sort of... Uh, take leave of that church world and you went to California and came back and went to college and kind of immersed yourself in that world. And you also have a, a brother, is that yes. right? Yeah. Who you say in the book ha- had a much easier time leaving some of those things behind and seeming care- carefree about it. Um, there was one sentence that, that you wrote that I just, um, and maybe this is just going to be a little thing for me and not for anybody else, but you said, why could my brother throw himself full, so fully at things and I could not? You were talking about you know, going with him to this festival, this massive uh, festival, and he seemed it's so um, conscience, conscience-free about just participating in everything, and you were a little reserved, and, and it made me feel so... Uh, it, it really resonated with me, I guess, about my own transitions in various stages of my life, feeling even as recently as this last week at times feeling like, why can't I just abandon myself to things? Yes. Um, and why do I feel so repressed still? Why do I still feel so cautious or so, and maybe some of that caution is like, uh, you know, don't step out into moving traffic. You could die kind of ca- caution. <laughs> the good, uh, the good caution, the good type of caution. Yeah. But there's this other kind of caution that's, that's um, prevents me um, from fully experiencing the world yeah, and I, you know, part of it, I think, is, is a, was just a function of age. Like, my brother's the oldest, and there's my sister in the middle, and I was younger. So when this, you know, kind of bomb ripped through us when my sister got ill, um, it was like he, he was thrown outwards, and I was thrown inwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just kind of too young to be able to do much about it. Like, he was sent off to boarding school, which, you know, he didn't like that much, but, you know, he, it got him away from the from the um, kind of site of the explosion, as it were. 
And I only had one way to go, and that was inwards. So I would kind of, you know, put myself away in my room, and I just started reading and reading and reading, and, and that was, you know, that's, a, that's been a great thing. Like, um, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be rid of that legacy at all. But it did mean that I kind of began to observe life from just below the surface. Like, and that was a, it was a mechanism of protection um, because I, I kind of needed this bomb-proof glass between myself and, and, and life. And, and that was, um, you know, I, <clears throat> I created that through a kind of very intense internal dialogue. And I, and I really spiritualized and theologized that mm. too. Um, like this was a kind of protective mechanism that I had this very, very intense internal world that I could turn to. But it, but it stopped me engaging fully with the external world. And it was, you know, it was really intensely obvious when I went to this massive festival called Glastonbury, um, kind of um, right at the end of the 1980s with my brother. And, and I just wanted to, to just let go and have this amazing time. And I just couldn't. And I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't work out why that couldn't happen. Um, and um, it was kind of frustrating to do that. So, you know, when I got home, I had these kind of really quite serious questions to myself, like, why can't I do that? Why can't I do that? And my, when my brother was out one day, I kind of literally took that question into his bedroom. I was like, well, the answer must be in here somewhere, um, and kind of snuck around and looked through his records and then looked through his bookshelves, and there was this pink-spined... Um, book this kind of day glow pink spine book that kind of jumped out i was like oh that looks kind of pretty interesting like fairly way out of my comfort zone that was the electric kool-aid acid test by tom wolf and um this was just right at the beginning of my year between school and college and i just absolutely devoured that book um every single word and it and it really opened up um so many things for me and, and one of the things it did was make me think i need to go to california in, in Bible terms, I need to go to the place where these things happened. Exactly. Uh, so I got on a camel go and followed west, a star. And, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and that was kind of the beginning of me realizing there was this internal thing and, and wanting some means of, of pushing beyond it and, and of breaking through it. Mm. And then you spend the next part of the, the book and, and also in your personal life talking about um, experiences of psychedelic drugs and the way that the, the counterculture emerged from the yes. culture as an, an, another way of transcending um, the painful, mundane experiences of life and really felt that they had found you know, nirvana in some way, this, this unexplored world that average people were still yeah. in the matrix. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's so tempting to see, to look back with great nostalgia on the 60s and the summer of love and all this, like it was amazing and completely wonderful. But actually... You know, if you look at it, it had come from this place of profound pain. Uh, and, you know, the people who are just kind of maturing in the 60s are born just during or just after the Second World War. There's, there's enormous rupture there. There's massive anxiety, uh, you know, and like genuine, reasonable fears about nuclear annihilation. Um, you've got the Vietnam War. You've got civil rights things going on. You've got the growing pressures of industrialization where... The, the kind of norms of the way that people work and um, kind of have their labor and, and so on are all being thrown up. Um, so there's an enormous amount of anxiety and pain going on there. And I think what happens in the 60s is that people begin, just as I had done, to lift away um, <laughs> because they, they can't cope with it. And they, and they lift away in all sorts of different ways, depending on kind of social strata. So, you know, some of the guys who'd 
uh, come back from World War II, you know, uh, in, at, at that kind of um, angle of it, you know, maybe they turn to become Hell's Angels and, and, you know, these kind of incredibly powerful motorbikes that give them this extraordinary experience and it's this kind of really visceral thing. Uh, and, you know, the word Hell's Angels, it comes from these bombing squads in World War II, so there's a, there's a sense of flight in, in those guys too. Then you've got, um, you know, the kind of LSD counterculture coming in that way, and, and it's, uh, I mean, the story of how it's invented is really fascinating, and the guy who invents it, Albert Hoffman, later writes a book, a really smart book called LSD, My Problem Child, where he says, look, this was a drug that came out of people's intense experience of alienation. Mm. And people actually genuinely thought that they would experience real breakthrough, um, that this would bring about um, you know, a new era of world peace. I mean, like people honestly, honestly believed this stuff. Right. And, and no doubt, I mean, it's powerful. Like, it was powerful, so the CIA got hold of it, and they're kind of doing all these kind of crazy experiments with it too. Um, and these, these people aren't, you know, they're not drug addicts. They're not, you know, these aren't people who you kind of think, oh, you know, terrible druggies. They are smart people who have found a technology that they really think is going to help humankind. And it gets fed to the British Prime Minister and it gets, you know, it goes to all kinds of interesting places. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, it, it kind of gets to certain points, but it just doesn't quite make that breakthrough and people begin to feel that probably towards the end of 1966 mm. where they really feel yeah you know we can push beyond and we can open up these doors of perception and hold them open for good but um you know then the beatles start talking about going beyond acid and ken kesey's like oh you know we need to be able to do this without acid and they're keeping on pushing beyond and beyond and it doesn't work mm. it doesn't work so i then in the book look at at, at um fear and loathing in las vegas um which is you know, Huntress Thompson's kind of brilliant book, and I'd read it at university as like, woohoo, you know, just everyone go crazy and, <laughs> and, a, and a real kind of celebration of hedonism. It's not. It's a, that book is a long lament. He is so sad and cut up that the 60s were a total failure. Mm. And, and he's not even able to deal with that lament, so he just pushes further and further and further into, the, into this nihilistic thing. Um, but the reason he does that is because he is so gutted that it just didn't work. It really didn't work. Yeah. So in the modern era, like modern meaning closer to our time sure. now, um, you then begin to explore the role of technology, um, smartphones, wearables. If we have edibles, then maybe wearables. <laughs> yeah. And... and, uh, and same pattern, yes. at least you perceive to be a similar, a similar thing happening. I, and I've been thinking a lot about this. In fact, when I first did my year without God, I was asked to give a talk somewhere locally here. And, um, I, I called it, we're made of stories. Atheists mm. are fond of saying we're made of stardust, which is also a really profound, you know, I thought of it as you were talking about the sparks rising to meet the stars, you know, kind yep. of thing. It's like going home. Um, but, uh, but it also, as a more of a social sciences person, as a, as a writer, as someone who's been playing with words all my life, I, I'm also fond of the idea that we're made of stories and that these stories are these controlling narratives or these ways that we try to interpret our existence. Yes. And, um, and I heard a, a lecture here in Pasadena not too long ago by Michio Kaku, this 
you know, fantastic uh, uh, physicist, particle physicist, but also, also uh, sort of dubbed a futurist, right? So he talks, right. so his popular talks are often about technologies of the future and how wonderful life is going to be. And I went to this lecture at the Civic Center here in Pasadena at the, as a guest of the people that were putting it together, and I was going to blog about it. And I was so sort of troubled by what he said that I never actually ended up writing anything. Wow. Um, it's still sort of been percolating in the back of my mind as I'm reading your book. And he's so um, optimistic about the future. And I just tend to be a bit more, uh, I would say, nihilistic just by nature. Yeah. You know, I just tend to think, yeah, you know, it's going to be a struggle and then we'll die. And it's, but, the, but the struggle is worth it, right? The struggle is worth it. It's like yeah. the struggle is called humanity. It's what we get to do as we're going along towards the grave. So, and we can drink beer. And, and we can know. drink beer. So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so I'm, a, I'm kind, of a, kind of a hedonist in that way, maybe a kind of uh, Epicurean type of thing. I want to enjoy you know, what can be enjoyed of it. And so I'm, I'm thinking, listening to this lecture and, and thinking, gosh, everybody is so excited about and I have, I'm, I'm just like cataloging the problems with right. this kind of idea, like who can afford it? You know, what about the people who can't afford, you know, the toilet that will analyze your waste and tell you if you're sick, like yeah. in, in the moment, you know, they're like, this is going to be amazing. You'll know you have cancer long before you would conventionally and go get a colonoscopy. Your toilet will analyze your feces and tell you if you're getting sick, which is fantastic. I mean, yeah. that sounds amazing, but that's some clever shit. Yeah. That's some clever shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know. Probably the 1% can afford that or something, you know. So I, I'm just, like, thinking of all the ways in which this is super invasive as well, privacy-wise, and, um, you know, just thinking about all this. So I'm reading your book and, and thinking about the way you're describing technology and AI. And, of course, now in, through the cinema and popular culture, we're totally obsessed with yes. uh, the, the boundary between humanity and non-humanity, if we can even find one. Like, mm. is there – where do you draw the line between something that's human and something that's not? Or what would make something human? Yeah. And what would make it not human? Or at what point did, did apes cease to be what we would think of as apes and, or, or primates and become what we would think of as humans? And as we move towards technology, where do we stop being human and just become machine? And, we're, you know, we're, we've been exploring this in fiction and literature, yeah. you know, forever. And I think it's a complete continuum. And this is why, um, this is why the book does move towards digital technology. I mean, and, th- and there's a, there is a fascinating timeline, so... You know, you've got your kind of LSD counterculture and, and um, so many of the characters within that then do begin explicitly to, to explore, once they've kind of got fed up with acid, they do begin to explicitly explore uh, computers as the kind of next thing. And, and uh, you know, Ken Kesey himself was like, hey, you know, this is the next thing after acid. And, and Timothy mm. Leary is like, you know, yeah, you've got to tune in and log on and drop out, whatever, you know. Um, and then, and, and it kind of links in similarly with Apollo. So you have kind of Apollo 11, and it's only, I think, 10 or 12 weeks after the first moon landings that the first message is sent over what's going to grow to become the internet. And it's this kind of great story because, you know, these two uh, computers, one at UCLA and the other one up at uh, Stanford Research Institute. Uh, and it's this guy, Doug Engelbart, who in 1968 had given this um, lecture at a computer conference in San Francisco. And it's, you can see it on YouTube, actually. It's, it's become known as the mother of all demos. Like, you have never seen anything like it. Steve Jobs had nothing on this. He, he just presents new thing after new thing in one 90-minute presentation, like the first mouse the world's ever seen, the first clickable hypertext, 
the first kind of uh, spreadsheet, the first kind of proper word processing and logical file structure. And then he brings someone up on kind of video conference. It's like, so that, that, you know, the people there who describe it is like he was dealing lightning with both hands, like this kind of Zeus-like <laughs> power. Um, but Think the reason it, we, yeah, why... we ascribe God-like power to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. And, and, but very, very explicitly, his mission in creating this, what he called his online system, had been for the augmentation of human intellect. Like absolutely explicitly, he began that work to stop people going to war. He was creating an empathy machine. Hmm. You know? uh, and he, he, you know, he survives World War II and he's sitting in, on a beach in 1945 reading this article in Atlantic magazine like, how can we stop going to war again and we need to build these memory machines? And he's like, that's what I'm going to do. So his, his uh, kind of trip through the 60s and he tried ass and was like, you know, yeah, it's kind of cool, but I, I'm interested in these wafers of silicon rather than the wafers of you know, acid, whatever. And, and he, he creates this computer... And then once he's created one, he's like, well, actually, if we link them together, that will kind of ex- exponentially grow this power of empathy. So the first connections made, and I think it's like December 1969 or something, this guy down at UCLA, he, he starts the whole thing up, and he's meant to send the first message, which is going to be log on. And the whole thing crashes after two characters. So over up in Stanford Research Institute, the very first message that's received over this thing that's going to become the internet I mean it's the first two nodes is low and it's like this angelic proclamation of, you know, <laughs> something powerful is amongst us do not be afraid you know um, but immediately at that point there's a guy watching this who's working working with Engelbart and he's like hmm I yeah this is and he, he just gets it like that and a couple of months you know within a couple of months he's moved up into the hills outside LA had a phone line installed and becomes the world's first digital worker. Like he has worked out a way of sending information back and forth across this thing and it grows. But the point is, is that it grows explicitly as this kind of empathy network. Like how can we augment our human memory with this digital memory and it kind of crashes all the way back through Renaissance and Platonic thought. How can I improve and augment my human memory to become that little my bit limits. more divine. Yeah, yeah, these physical limits. These physical limits. And the people who immediately jump onto that are all the kind of hippies who've moved up into the, uh, or out of the city, into the hills, away from the violence of the city, and they start um, buying up these computers and start you know, creating these kind of online networks. But it is... Um, so you know, one of the people doing that is this guy Stuart Brand. He's a, he's a great guy and, and has been very generous in correspondence. And he was the guy who started the whole Earth catalog, which was this this kind of what what Steve Jobs called Google in paperback form. And it was it was you know if you're going to start one of these hill hilltop uh, kind of utopian communities, like here's where to buy shovels and seeds, and here's how to do agriculture. But it's also like here's where to buy computers, and here's you know, some kind of teachings about the New Age and everything. So it was everything. It was all this kind of stuff. And on issue one of the Whole Earth Catalogue, right up front, he puts his statement ideologically there. He says, we are as gods, and we've just got to get used to it. Mm. He very, very clearly says that this, this is about ascent. Like, we're moving up into the mountains, and technologically we are going to move upwards, kind of onto, you know, up Mount Olympus. And the way we're going to do that is digitally, through the augmentation of human intellect. Um, so in fact, you know, the, the LSD counterculture and the whole kind of Apollo thing, it comes together 
in this pursuit of, of augmentation and perfection. And of course, you know, the interesting thing about Apollo is back in the 16th century, people were convinced that the site of the Garden of Eden was on the moon. Well, you know, why not? It's pure white. And, well, let's face it, you know, we're dealing with a pretty white culture here at the moment <laughs> of time. So it's, you know, it's pure white. It doesn't fall. Like everything else falls to earth. Why doesn't the moon fall? Because it's made of higher stuff. It's a heavenly body. Mm. And you have people like Kepler and uh, these other kind of early scientists saying, you know, if only we can get to the moon, we will have discovered the Garden of Eden. Mm. Um, so the pursuit of the moon, uh, you know, you might say, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, like, hundreds of years later, we know that the moon's not the site of the Garden of Eden. Yeah, okay, well, just listen to the transcripts of the guys going up into space. Oh, and by the way, they're called missions, uh, and we're sending guys up you know, into space, and their, and their immediate first response is they're reading from Genesis, and they're reading from the Psalms, and they're kind of doing communion on the moon. You know, it becomes an explicitly <laughs> religious right. enterprise. Well, and, and the vision of the earth from that vantage oh, point. Yeah, you know, you have this godlike vision, and, you know, you have the, the kind of chief rocket scientist of NASA saying, you know, once we have created these kind of places up in space, we will look back and realize that we're all together and, and all human wars will, will cease. Right. This um, was Arthur C. Clarke's vision, if you, you know, right. read some of his science fiction, that you know, explicitly after 2001 Space Odyssey, there was like uh, four books in that series, actually. And yeah. the later ones, you know, he talks specifically about religion being a thing of the past. And yeah. now that we have this much deeper knowledge of science and the universe, that we're all sort of united together as one human family rather than this yeah. kind of uh, geopolitical so, boundaries. Yeah, and all this comes together. And, and the, the place it comes together kind of at the end of the 60s where this kind of whole crisis in what the hell was all that about and there's these assassinations and, um, you know, um, Martin Luther King getting shot and all these kind of terrible traumas. And it comes together in this great new hope, right. which is digital technology. And very, very explicitly, people are seeing this as the kind of extension of the counterculture. And one of the young writers at the Whole Earth Catalogue, who's worked with Stuart Brand and he's, you know, a real hippie and he's also a, been a charismatic Christian, uh, he starts this new magazine, which is going to be all about exploring that, and it's called Wired. So Wired magazine comes out of the Whole Earth Catalogue, it comes out of this charismatic Christianity, and it's, it is about, you know... Um, and, and, you know, issue one of Wired, we have it in our power to, to start the Earth again. Like, we have it in our power to, to regenerate a new Eden, and we're going to do it out of these technologies, and we're going to create something pure, and, you know, this is how we are going to be healing our hurts. I've subscribed to Wired Magazine on, on and off through the years, mm. and I'm, I'm always struck by the covers are just yeah. so this positivistic, yeah. you know, kind of vision of the world. Um, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating lens and, and, and if you read the the kind of ai evangelists you know and that's what we must call them it's it's extraordinary the religious language that they're using yes you know we will enter a new jerusalem and um you know we will become like gods and and anyone who who refuses to take part of this you know they'll basically just die out because this is about evolution and again you know that one of them actually uses that passage from revelation you know there will be no more crying or, or pain or whatever so, um, you know, the question is, is it going to happen? Well, okay, I'm not so interested in that. What I'm interested in is the projected fantasy that we see right. in so many movies right now. Like, even if it doesn't happen, there is this kind of fantastical 
desire for it to happen. But it always ends badly at this moment. You know, I guess right. that's, you know, cinematically and narrative-wise, things have to sort of end badly. But, but Ex Machina, Chappie, yeah. two that come to mind. And, th- and this is, you know, I, I think that's for a very good reason. So in the book, I, I talk about all technologies as being psychedelic. And this, you know, this word that these guys had, had coined, um, a compound of two Greek words, meaning uncovering the soul. And this is what they thought LSD did. It was, it was psychedelic. It uncovered the soul. But my, my point is, is that, well, all technologies do something to uncover the soul. It's like revelatory. Yeah, it, it, it performs some act of revelation. So, you know, the example I use in the book is like when you grab a hammer, it's revealing something in your soul. Like, what do I want to do with this? You know, I could, I could create something, you know, some beautiful piece of carpentry, or I could smash your face in. And, and so the hammer is revealing something within myself. And the smartphone is, is highly psychedelic. Like, it reveals very deeply what is in your soul. Social networks are really, really strongly psychedelic. And, and, that, and people have been really caught out by that. They didn't realize what a trip this was. Like, it's, it's pulling kind of racist language out from them. Right. And like, oh, oh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. Like, well, duh. It's just, it's been so deeply buried in you before and it's now been so heavily amplified by this new technology. Like, we can't ignore it anymore. And right. yes, it, it, it was already existing like, within you. Here's you know? the rope now. You can yeah, hang, hang yeah, yourself exactly, with it. Right? Exactly. So, you know, AI is, a, is an incredibly powerful psychedelic, again. And what it reveals within us is, is this powerful longing to become godlike. I strongly believe that. I think, you know, the, the kind of most... The, the root thing in the soul is... Not that we want to become human. No, we, we want to become divine. Mm. And you see that stretching back. You know, you look, at, you look at Michelangelo painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and he, and he creates this wonderful panel on there, the creation of Adam. And it's, you know, the, there's, um, you know, it's the one with, the, with like the two fingers reaching out and, and you've got God. He's, a, to be honest, a bit old and, uh, you know... Curmudgeonly. A little, a little bit curmudgeonly and beardly. And then Adam, like... Whoa, Adam is young and buff and like much better body and is only, <laughs> only slightly painted below the level of God. And that's the whole point of the Renaissance. It's he's, like we can get pretty darn close. He's calling the question. Yeah, he's calling the question. Like how are we going to become like God? And well, you know, the, you, you kind of play on the words on the kind of finger wide gap between them. But, but the way we'll do it is digitally. Like, and um, we will do it through the augmentation of the mind. We will not do it through, through uh, ascension, through Christ, or through religion. And that was um, Michelangelo's kind of dirty secret, that he, he was a, uh, a Platonist. Right. Um, and the forms that you see, if you look at that painting, behind the image of God are absolutely perfect representations of the anatomy of the human brain. Like, he'd opened up her head and had a look. Like, in other words, <laughs> oh, you know where the site of divinity is? It's in the mind. Yes. So how are we going to raise ourselves? We're going to do it through the augmentation of memory. And then, of course, you know, that begins to happen with digital memory and so on. Yeah. So these, these artificially intelligent um, s- structures and technologies, they are explicitly about that. And if you talk to someone like Ray Kurzweil, you know, his vision of perfecting the human being is, first of all, to get rid of what people like Marv Minsky call this bloody mess of organic matter, you know, mm. this, this body, like, 
this failing Paul bruising. would approve of that, right? Yeah, exactly. This, yeah. this body of yeah, death. This body of death. And, it, and it, you know, it's exactly the same thing, like this thing that keeps getting sick and it gets old and it, it screws us up, you know. And what we need to do is kind of break open the head and release the mind. Um, and Kurzweil wants to upload himself as a digital consciousness, you know, so that he will be omniscient and he will be eternal and immortal and all these kind of things. And he feels that that is the goal of... of human becoming evolution and, yeah and 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 you know there's a there's a fantastic documentary about him which is which is really tragic actually i think it's a really a really sad um tone within it you can get it on youtube it's called transcendent man and he says towards the end of this he says you know people ask me does god exist and i say not yet wow i just think that's extraordinary you know <laughs> He is absolutely clear that the goal of this stuff is to create divinity. Yeah. Um, and that's what he feels we've been yearning towards. That's what he's been feeling we've been pushing I mean, That's the towards. Garden of Eden story from of the, the sort of proto-narrative of, of, yeah. of what we're becoming. And this is what, you know, I mean, it is right there. Like, you know, what does the serpent say? Like, oh, you know, you can maybe like if that. you eat that apple, you will become like God. In other words, you will know all things. Your mind will be perfected. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, this you then got your critics of AI, someone like Elon Musk, who, um, and again, it's on YouTube, it's a really fascinating piece because he's asked at this aerospace symposium, someone's like, hey, you know, what do you think about AI? And he takes a long time to answer. And he gets really serious and he's like, well, I think this is the biggest problem we've got. Like, um, you know, people talk about AI. He says, I, I, it's, it's kind of like the guy who thinks he can conjure the demon and everything's going to be fine. And it's really not fine. And here again is this religious language coming yeah, up. It's the religious language. And, it, and, it, and, you know, for me, that, that goes back to, you know, I meet, when I first heard that, I immediately thought of the kind of ancient myth of raising the demon, which is Christopher Marlowe's, you know, the tragedy of Dr. Faustus. And, uh, you know, with this, where this academic, he's bored with human knowledge. Like, he feels he's known, he knows everything there is to know on earth, but it's not enough. So in order to push beyond into transcendent knowledge, he conjures this demon, and he's like, this is great. You know, I've got this thing under my control. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? You know, and very quickly he realizes, uh, yeah, a hell of a lot of stuff can go wrong. Now, you know, my point is, look, it, it's not that there is some externally existing demon that no. is going to be conjured. It's just the demon already exists. It's within ourselves, and it's this powerful psychedelic that reveals this thing like, you know, we want to become gods. And why is that? And, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's a fairly simple answer. I think there is this miracle of consciousness. Like, it is extraordinary to be conscious. And it's so extraordinary that we are absolutely obsessed with finding some meaning to explain itself. Mm. Like, wh- how could this be? So we're constantly looking for some higher structure... Explanation. ...that explains how we can become conscious. And... And through that, you know, we, 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 we look for these different systems or technologies to, to be able to do that. Um, but, you know, within that, what that creates is this kind of demonic thing where we're always pushing on to right. trying to find some transcendent explanation. And what that actually ends up doing is stopping us looking sideways at one another. Like, you know what? If we're all uploading ourselves to the cloud, what actually is happening is we're not really caring for one another. And that's one of the other fantastic stories of the 60s is, you know, while people were tripping off into space and into, you know, acid trips, like, were they really caring for one another sideways? 
uh, actually no, and that's that's really sad. Yeah. And you know, and as we trip off into our screens and all the rest of it, you know, are we being more empathetic towards one another? Because these technologies, which begin with trying to improve empathy and connectivity, what, and connectivity, which all these all these things do, you know, like Apollo is phrased in that language, like it will bring about world peace, and so is LSD, and so is the beginning of digital technology. They all end up actually flipping to become technologies of escape. Mm. Like the world is so painful, how can I get out of here? Right. And that's what LSD becomes. It becomes a mode of escape, and so does space. And, you know, like if you look at films like um, uh, Interstellar, you know, mm. like Interstellar is like, well... Earth is pretty shot, so let's just get out of here. You know, let's leave everyone behind. There's probably about six billion of them, but don't worry about it. We'll just leave those behind, and we'll go and start a new, wonderful humanity elsewhere. Right. Like what? Yeah. And, like hold on, a minute. why don't we try and do something with this place and like try and care for everybody? You know, too late. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing with AI. Like in in and uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil talks about the singularity. You know, this moment where we'll be be able to upload ourselves. And well, that's from quantum physics. You know, that's like this thing where. It, a singularity is like a black hole from which no information can escape. So you might know everything, but you won't be able to relate to anybody. Um, and in our gathering of all knowledge into ourselves, you know, are we really actually becoming better people to one another? Mm. So all of this is kind of building up within myself as well. Yeah, to bring this around you know, to where yeah. you are personally, and the, the one technology that we haven't talked about yet is except in the beginning of your story, and I think it comes full circle here, is, is the technology of religion, which is probably yeah. the oldest technology that there is for Absolutely. this desire to transcend ourselves and our limitations and to, and to really experience the transcendent. Yeah. Um, so how is that happening for you as you go through this journey to where you are, like up to the present? Like how did, it seems like in the book you re- sort of reveal that that religion is just another one of these failed attempts to find something that isn't really there. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's a sophisticated technology, and it's one that we've used and developed for a heck of a long time. Um, and again, I mean, we talk about wearable technologies mm. as if this is something new. I mean, we've been wearing technologies for a long time, and, you know, religion is, is this wonderfully internal, integrated technology that kind of fits so nicely in, you know, and it kind of feels so comfortable at times. Um, but, you know, just as technology becomes a religion, I think it's really interesting to see religion as that technology, you know, as a psychedelic. It uncovers what's in the soul and it, and it offers itself as a means of ascent, of a means of augmenting and improving us as human becomings and, and mm. transforming us into something else. That's so interesting as you think, I, this just occurs to me, and it seems so obvious now that I, but it occurs to me now is, is if religion is a revelatory technology, it really helps explain why some people will open homeless shelters and other people will blow up airports, you know, oh. you know, because it just reveals kind of Absolutely. What's, what's already latent within a person. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think I discovered that in my own loss of faith. I think what, what was most shocking to me in a way about my own, and it wasn't that shocking actually, but I think it was shocking to other people. Uh, was just that my life pretty much carried on as it always had because my orientation or my sense of self or my, you know, my inward sort of yeah. uh, direction was, was untouched by the fact that I didn't have a, a kind of um, supernatural explanation yeah. for these things. And, it, you know, uh, just uh, 
Silicon Valley the last couple of months, I rewatched the whole of Breaking Bad, you know, this kind of mm. great series. And, and what struck me this time is that when he breaks, he is bad. Like, this isn't a show about someone who is good who turns bad. The whole point of the show is, and he admits it right at the end, is when I broke, I broke and, it, and was shown to be bad. Like, right. And this is, what's, what, this is what that did. It uncovered what was already there. He was it's not terrifying. a nice guy. Yeah. He was suppressed. He was angry inside. He was dissatisfied. It was pre-existing within him, you know. Right. Um, and, I, you know, this is what religion does for us. And it, and it, and it does that beautifully. Like, it, it, it has developed this means of allowing us to uncover what's in the soul and to, to bring that to the surface in a healthy way. But what then, as perhaps, you know, was becoming really unhealthy in my life was that it was then offering a means by which I could flee that and escape it rather than actually having to, in a material sense, come face to face with it. So, you know, I talked about this kind of major ecstatic religious time um, with the Toronto Blessing. uh, And actually one of the key things around that time is that my grandmother dies. And there's this kind of like flat wound and, and all of the laughing and all of the kind of flaying and jumping around stops. And in fact, quite quickly, I begin to move you know, physically from being on the front row of church towards the back door. And I begin to just look at what's actually going on in people's faces and start asking some questions. And then I meet a guy um, who, funnily enough, is, is started working for the UK edition of Wired and he's like really interesting about technology. His father's a vicar too. And we're like, hey, you know, we've got a whole lot of questions. Let's try and answer them. We start this, this community called Vox, which is explicitly just trying to help people engage in those questions using different technologies. And it becomes essentially a capsule that returns us to Earth. I mean, mm. um, it's like that film Gravity. You know, it's one of my favorite films. It's a fantastic mm. film because what happens is this this woman who is surrounded by all these insulating technologies, her spacesuit and her spacecraft and all the rest of it, and all of these get ruptured. And what she has to do is return to Earth. And the reason, of course, she's returning to Earth is because finally she's got to come to terms with that thing that she's buried, which is grieving over the death of her daughter. So there is this wonderful sense of descent in that film. Right. And it is her climbing out of the muck, actually, at the end. I and mean, it's so kind of... It's so good. It's so good, but, it, you know, she climbs out of the muck, like, you know, born again in this kind of material sense. From a womb, that kind From of... From a womb, yeah. yeah. And as a woman, you know, and there's this beautiful feminine side to this that, you know, she is born again, and it's about that material um, meeting with our wounds. Yeah. And that was the process for me, is that I began to have to look at the way in which religion had served to lift me away from the trauma that I'd felt through my sister and all the rest of it and had promised me healing from it, but actually it was never going to be able to do that. And in fact, it was a myth of perfection that was being incredibly unhelpful. This myth, the platonic, the original platonic yeah. myth that yeah. we could find yeah. the that, pristine that, you know, thing. Somehow I could be turned into this, augmented into this, you know, my mind could be perfected, I could become this perfect being and I would then live forever. I would be returned up to, you know, integration in the Godhead. You know what? That really screwed my family up. Following that in all the ways that we did, it really, really messed us up. So 
you know, the book is called Getting High, but it, actually a lot of it is about the, the kind of flip side of that, which is, you know, which is the DNA of depression, which I see so widespread among pastors' families uh, and, and among people within Christianity, because it's almost like it is this theologized depression. You know, in the work I do now in Life After God, there is so much of this depression around mortality right. and around broken promises and yes. about the idea that people thought they would live forever and they, now they realize they're not or, or they had this promise of overcoming in their life and they can't seem to get there. And um, I wrote some time ago uh, an article about um, the so- supposed sort of nihilism that a lot of Christian apologists claim atheists embody that, you know, without this objective right. sense of purpose from outside somewhere that we are given a purpose for existence, yep. you know, yeah. that there you're all you're left with is this atheist sort of nihilistic sense that when you die, that's it. And there's no ultimate purpose. And my, my, you know, sort of assessment of that is that we, the only reason that we grieve and are depressed over no ultimate sense of purpose is that we were promised an ultimate sense of purpose yes. when there was never one to begin with. And so the lie about our supposed importance in the universe has created a kind of vacuum that, was, that shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, so th- that actually what's happening is when people feel like their feet are on the ground and yeah. that's it. You know, that that no, that was always just it. Like that was yeah. always it. It's only because you were promised you could fly yes. that now you feel depressed that you can't fly. Yeah. You know, and so it's about over it's about a getting real with that sense of groundedness that is for me kind of warp and woof of what I'm doing with people in, in coaching and on the podcast, where it's a matter of coming to terms with reality. And it may be a good point to read a, a little section Please. from towards the end of the book. Um which is where I'm beginning to come to terms with this myself. And, and part of the reason that that's happened for me is um, the friend who his dad was a pastor and worked for Wired and I'd created this community with, um, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer um, and refused to kind of jump back to a, a kind of religious, it'll be fine explanation of that and was incredibly courageous and brave in saying, okay, you know, I'm going to face this in a material way and, and you know people said to me you know well you know perhaps you've just become disillusioned about Nick's death it's like well yeah because the illusion has been broken like you know <laughs> you know that, 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 that's what that's disillusion means like yeah, the illusion has gone it's so, dissipated or yeah. like dissolved yeah yeah so this this is a, a bit which kind of uh, kind of is around that 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 period so um, we upgrade and upgrade again praying that we too will become improved as a result But the finger-wide gap between us and perfection will not, cannot be bridged. Avoiding this truth is a multi-billion pound business that blows hot air under us to offer the illusion of flight. Mm. LSD, Apollo, digital culture, ecstatic religion, all of it promises that we can be angels, purified, bacteria-free, winged gods of instant communication, bright, shining, and perfect. It breathes through LED screens and social networks and space tourism. It gusts through antibacterial sprays, antidepressants, anti-aging creams, and gravity-defying surgery. It rushes through drinks that give us wings. All of it an act of permanent sublimation to keep us high at all times. Yet, it's a trick of misdirection. It's the new flying carpet, the updated Indian rope trick. It masquerades as divine revelation sustained by the perception of altitude while actually hiding the reality of, a, of the approaching ground beneath us until it is too late. Mm. 
So good. So, yeah, I mean, that, that for me was that moment of, of just allowing the illusion to be broken. And in doing that, to realizing that actually that is where the point of care comes from. And the, the kind of contrast I make in the book is, you know, in 1968, Apollo 8 gives us this incredible Earthrise photo, the first time the whole Earth has been seen from space. And it's only years later, in about 1990, that we get the Voyager probe, which has got to the edge of the solar system. And Carl Sagan, the scientist and kind of writer and poet, persuades NASA, and it takes him ages to do it, but he finally persuades NASA to turn the cameras around one more time and take another photo. So this isn't taken from around the moon. This is taken from the edge of the solar system. And it's the photo that's become known as the family portrait. And in that photo is everybody and everybody. Like every single body in our solar system is there. Mm. And I would defy anybody to point to the pixel that is Earth. You can't find it. You can't see it. It is, it is nothing. And, it, and the point I make in the book is that, you know, actually, from one perspective, it looks like the Earth really makes sense. It looks beautiful, and it's this wonderful, calm, peaceful, green and blue ball. And, you know, actually, from that height, what you can't see is the Vietnam War raging below. You can't see, you know, children being kidnapped. You can't see the destruction of all these other things. But when you go further away, that sense of order disappears, you know, the universe does not care. That's right. Only we can do that. Only we can do that moment of care. And that's what that disillusionment brings to me. Is like, you know what? If we're going to care for each other, we have got to do that. We can't abdicate it to some higher structure that's going to do that on our behalf. It's far easier to do that. And when we get high, we kind of, you know, try and, try and pretend that that's what's happening. And, and Aldous Huxley writing in the 1950s and 60s where he does these really thoughtful explorations with mescaline and with mushrooms and acid and stuff and writes them down. But what he says is, look, you know, I'd love to have thought on those trips that I could come down from the seventh heaven to offer a cup of water to my brother. But I couldn't because my trousers were too important. Like he was, spent hours just staring at his own trousers or pants in America, you should call them, you know. Like, we can translate. Yeah. So it's, it's like, you know, we have this illusion, as I did, you know, tripping off into the ecstatic in these, in these religious meetings that something really significant is going on in that the heavenly realm. the last the hope realm. of the earth is here in the church, yeah, and, you know, and that we're going to... And like amazing revival is going to happen. And, and you know what? I wasn't helping anybody. Yeah. It was an illusion. And I'm glad it got broken. I really am glad it got broken. And there's this wonderful line at the end of, of Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden, where one character turns to the other and says, now we don't have to be perfect. We can be good. Mm. So rich. And that, for me, is that, that breaking of, like, forget the myth of perfection, which is what, you know, this augmentation, this struggle to be up there and the kind of digital upgrade or whatever it is, the religious upgrade, like, forget that. You know, we forget pursuing perfection because that releases you to be good. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. You know, the, uh, as I got toward the end of your book, um, the further I got into it, um, the more I kept thinking of um, this, the prologue to um, Ursula Le Guin's new collection mm. of poetry called Late in the Day. And um, 
again, I've just sort of been in my mind circling around some of these words. And it came to my mind when I thought about, so, so what do we do? Like, how do we help each other deflate our hot air balloons and come back down yeah. to where we can see and relate to each other? You know, I mean, if the problem that you're, it, I, you know, I think really, really astutely identifying is this age old from consciousness on desire to transcend the thing that we feel is limiting us and become like pure consciousness, um, you know, how do we then... Um, step back into reality. Yeah. And for me, it's a lot of times the poets that, that help me do that, you know, who are, and what poets do, I think better than anyone, certainly better than me is pay close attention to life and the things that other people are missing because they're too busy doing other things. Yes. You know, they're like observing so closely um, plants and animals and the way they interact and human behavior mm. and the way that human behaviors are odd and, and, and beautiful and yes. a smile. You know, you could write an entire poem with just about a single smile that you saw on the street. And most of us aren't observing the world at that sort of micro level. Yes. And in, this, um, in the prologue, um, Ursula Le Guin writes... Um, this beautiful thing I think connects so well with what you've written. She says, I heard the poet Bill Siverly this week say that in essence, sorry, this week, say that the essence of modern high technology is to consider the world as disposable, to use it and throw it away. The people at this conference are here, she's addressing a conference, Mm -hmm. are here to think about how to get outside the mindset that sees the techno fix as the answer to all problems. It's easy to say we don't need more high technologies inescapably dependent on the despoilation of the earth. It's easy to say we need recyclable, sustainable technologies, old and new, pottery making, bricklaying, sewing, weaving, carpentry, plumbing, solar power, farming, IT devices, whatever. But here, in the midst of our orgy of being lords of creation, texting as we drive, it's hard to put down the smartphone and stop looking for the next techno fix. Changing our minds is going to be a big change. To use the world well to be able to stop wasting it and our time in it, we need to relearn, relearn our being in it. Skill in living, awareness of belonging to the world, delight in being a part of the world, always tends to involve knowing our kinship as, kinship as animals with animals. Darwin gave us that first, I'm butchering this, Darwin first gave that knowledge a, a scientific basis, and now both poets and scientists are extending the rational aspect of our sense of relationship to creatures without nervous systems and to non-living beings, our fellowship as creatures with other creatures, things with other things. And, you know, she goes on like that for some time. And then she says over here towards the end, science describes accurately from outside, poetry describes accurately from inside. Science explicates, poetry implicates, both celebrate what they describe. We need the languages of both science and poetry to save us. Yeah from stockpiling endless information that fails to inform our ignorance or our irresponsibility. And that reminds me, and it's absolutely beautiful that, I'm so glad you've shared that, and it reminds me of um, something that Gary uh, Snyder wrote in a book called The Practice of the Wild, which was actually a a gift that my friend Nick gave to me just before he died. Hmm. And in that uh, book, he says, each of us at the table must learn to come to terms with the fact that one day we will be part of the meal. Hmm. Now, I just think that is absolutely wonderful because it's, it's coming to terms with the fact that these atoms that have come together in this particular body, for me at this particular time, need to be offered back to the earth if 
the cycle of life is going to continue. You know, and it's this extraordinarily selfish thing that we want to preserve it and make it immortal and everything else. But that can only destroy the cycle of life. Now, when I'd been talking to Simon Critchley, this philosopher, you know, and I'd been kind of wondering about all this stuff and I'd, you know, was still kind of wrestling with these different religious questions. And I was like, so, yeah, like how I can see, you know, we can talk about the death of God and all the rest of it. But like, you know, what about the afterlife? And he said... I believe in the afterlife. I believe in the life of those who come after. Mm. And again, that for me completely reframed it. Like, yeah. you know, what I want to be able to do in my life is live in such a way so that my children or my friends or whoever comes after can get up from the grave and walk away. Mm. And that I have somehow resourced them being able to do that. So the afterlife isn't, you know, a struggle to preserve my life afterwards. Right. I need, I need to dissolve and decay and go away, you know, but it is about resourcing the life of those who come after. And that kind of environmental point about, therefore, you know, not kind of grasping onto things, but, but allowing us to become part of these cycles, I think is so important. But that means being engaged in the earth yeah. rather than trying to lift ourselves above it. Oh, that's beautiful. I think that's a perfect sort of summation yeah. of where we've been. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do thank this. Thank you. Yeah, it's been Enjoy. so much fun and uh, enjoy your trip back back home. Thank you so much. tuning in this has been the life after god podcast we'll be back next week thank you so much hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.